This is an RNZ podcast. First word that comes to mind is shagging, bonk, rooting, <laughs> procreation, the ins and outs of sex. Okay. Uh, oh, bang. bang. What? Bang. It's <laughs> called bang. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm, bang. <laughs> Kia ora, this is episode 3 of season 3 of Bang, I'm Melody Thomas, and in this episode we're going to explore something that so many humans do, despite the fact that we don't appear to be too good at it. Relationships. The long-term, monogamous, two-people-forever-till-death-do-we-part kind. We'll hear from Chris Ryan, the author of New York bestseller Sex at Dawn, about the relationship roadmap gifted to us by our hunter-gatherer ancestors. A few couples are going to share the ups and downs of their decades together, and sex therapist Nick Bates shares some valuable and, by the end, much-needed advice. Now, as always with Bang, some people featured in this episode have chosen to avoid using their names, or else are using pseudonyms, and also a quick content warning, suicide is mentioned in this episode. So we're going to start now by taking some of the basic assumptions that we often make about the true nature of human relationships and flipping them on their heads. Hi, my name is uh, Christopher Ryan. I'm an author and a podcast host. Uh, my first book was written together with my wife, Casilda Jetta. It's called Sex at Dawn, and it's about the prehistoric origins of modern sexuality. So before Chris explains some of his and Casilda's findings, here's the setup. At the start of the book, the authors go over what they call the standard narrative of human sexual evolution. Basically, for as long as humans have existed, men and women have made a trade. He offers her protection, food, shelter and status, and in return she promises to be his one and only so he can be sure of his paternity when it comes to her children. And they enter into this bargain despite conflicting biological agendas. Sperm is cheap, it's easy to make, and so it's in his best interest to spread his seed as far and wide as possible. But because she's facing nine months of pregnancy and breastfeeding and a couple of years with a toddler, it's in her best interest to lock him in. And there's no escaping all of this because it's written into our DNA. Or is it? What we found when we looked into hunter-gatherers and closely related primates and human anatomy and physiology was a very different picture that is actually much more hopeful because men and women aren't necessarily locked in this battle over their opposing agendas. When we imagine our cave-dwelling ancestors, we picture their societies looking like prehistoric versions of our own. Kind of like the Flintstones, right? The men go out to work or out on the hunt, while the women look after the babies, and eventually the men return to the family hearth to feed their families. In Sex at Dawn, Chris and Casilda reviewed decades of research, some of which has been overlooked and some of which they believe has been seriously misinterpreted, to build a case for something that they see as obvious. Basically, sexual exclusivity wasn't part of our ancestors' expectations around relationships. First of all, let's look at primates. There are at least 300 species, many of which live in complex social groups, meaning multiple males and females who have reached adulthood. Of those species, precisely none are sexually monogamous. So to believe that our species is naturally monogamous and has been since, you know, a million years ago or whatever, you have to accept that we are the only one out of 300 and some species that uh, exhibits this behavior. Mm. The fact is that humans have sex somewhere around a thousand times per conception, which is outlandish in biological terms. Virtually all animals, with only very few exceptions, have sex only when the female is ovulating. We are one of just three or four mammals that have sex when the female is not ovulating. In fact, we have sex in myriad ways that can't possibly result in pregnancy. Mm. I'm sure I don't need to outline those for you We've and your listeners. We've talked about some of them, yeah. <laughs> oh, okay, I'll let you handle that. By the way, the other exceptions, the other 
mammals that have sex for non-reproductive purposes are chimps and bonobos, which are the two most closely related primates to humans, and dolphins. And if you look at those species, what you see is that they're all highly intelligent and live in complex social networks where sex fulfilling a social function uh, would be very important and very helpful at a species level. Okay, let's look at bonobos for a second. As Chris said, one of our closest relatives. Bonobos have a bunch of sex. They also kiss in really intimate ways with tongues. They pash, they do proper pashing. They stare deeply into each other's eyes. And sex performs a really important social function. It bonds the group together. So in a time of stress, let's just say the group's arrived at a new food source and they're worried over who's going to get what. They'll use sex as a way to bond. The females will even rub their genitals together to relieve the apprehension. But while we share 98.7% of our DNA with bonobos, we're humans. Humans get jealous. Surely in our case, this kind of sexual freedom would threaten the social fabric rather than reinforce it. Well, or you could say it would arise and tear the social structure apart if you weren't sharing sexual partners. The Mosuo, also known as the Na people, have been living around Lugu Lake in southwest China, in the foothills of the Himalayas, for uh, centuries. And they are a society that, according to the standard narrative we outlined earlier, should not exist, should not be possible, because... They are a society that has absolutely no concern with biological paternity. The way the society is structured is uh, matrilineal, so the property passes from mother to daughter, not from father to son, as is typical in most societies. And the women are sexually autonomous. Everyone is sexually autonomous. And there's no shame associated with sexuality or with the number of partners one has or whatever. That's considered personal business. It's just part of life. And the way it works on a practical level is the girls live in the house of their mother and brothers sleep elsewhere. Either they've got a, a house in the fields with the animals or they'll sleep with different women. So when the girl reaches sexual maturity, she gets her own bedroom, which is called her flower room. And that will have a door that opens into the courtyard of her mother's house. But it also has a door that opens to the outside. And she can invite a man to come to her room and spend the night with her, whomever she wants. The only rule is that he has to leave before breakfast. And... She can invite a different man every night. She can do whatever she wants. It's totally up to her. So you say, well, what happens when she gets pregnant, right? The responsibility for her child falls to her, her sisters, and her brothers. The biological father is a non-issue. That doesn't matter. So it's a very interesting society in the sense that most mainstream scientists believe that paternity certainty is an inherent human concern, that mm. men have always been obsessed with controlling the sexual behavior of women. In fact, uh, the most will show that that's not a universal concern. The assumption that our ancestors lived in nuclear families and had this sort of fragmented social world that's a reflection of what we see in the modern world is deeply flawed. In fact, the way our ancestors lived was radically different from how we live today. We can certainly see reflections of it in the modern world. For example, the fact that social isolation is extremely painful for us. More people are living alone now than ever in the history of our species. And it's not coincidental that suicide rates are higher than they've ever been and depression is higher than it's ever been. And think about how we punish criminals. The worst possible punishment for a criminal short of execution is solitary confinement. Clearly, we're living in a way that's not natural for our species. So maybe monogamy isn't as natural as we've all supposed and our ancestors were a whole lot more sexually free than many of us are today. But given the situation that Chris has just described, this increasing social isolation and poor mental health outcomes and 
the state of the world, is it any wonder we seek out another human to get through it all with? Now, before you say it, monogamous commitment isn't the only way to live a life full of love and company. Far from it. And we're going to explore some of the different ways that people are doing relationships in the next episode of Bang. But for now, let's spend some time thinking about what I'm sure Chris would call a standard narrative, but this time in terms of love and human relationships. If we're going by the movies, by TV dramas and love songs and ads, that story would go something like this. We are born incomplete. Somewhere out there our second half awaits. And maybe we start out despising them. From the first moment I met you, your arrogance and conceit made me realise that you were the last man in the world I could ever be prevailed upon to marry. Or just a friend that we could never see that way. Peter, will you stay with me? Maybe our love is forbidden. His name is Romeo. He's a Montague, the only son of your great enemy. Or for some reason we have to fake a relationship and from that faked relationship blossoms something true and real. Because I'm in love with you, Archie. You what? But whatever the circumstances, if we just believe, we might be lucky enough to find our one person. Hey. What? I just want to take another look at you. And live happily ever after. I came here tonight because when you realize you want to spend the rest of your life with somebody, you want the rest of your life to start as soon as possible. Oh, that's when Harry met Sally, that last clip, and if you haven't seen it, go and watch it. So that's the movies, but it's time now to hear from some real couples, starting with Sam and Andy. Do you want to tell her the story? Yeah, I love the story. <laughs> I was working at a video store and Andy kept coming in and uh, I remembered you because you dropped in Twilight and it was a few working in the video store we're all sort of film snobs and we're like, Twilight, you're instantly written off. <laughs> you were really cute uh -huh. and you wrote a recommendation to a Stephen Fry documentary, didn't you? Yeah. And then when she was writing it down, I was like, just just put your number down there. And the most embarrassing thing was that you didn't hear me no. either. <laughs> so like, I had to repeat myself <laughs> and ask for your number again, which took a lot of courage, I have to say. But she did it. And they chatted about getting coffee sometime. And then Andy left. Then you, you texted oh, me right. and you were like, let's go for a drink tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Friday night. And then we just, we just, we went out and we kind of never... Yeah. Never went back. We did the typical uh, lesbian bring a trailer on your first date. It, yeah. yeah. Well, you technically had an, another address somewhere that you were supposedly living at. But never lived at, yeah. <laughs> and, you, yeah, and you just ended up staying yeah. all the time. Okay, so that bit is just like a movie. But here comes the stuff that wouldn't make it into the final cut. So, funnily enough, the video is still closed down and uh, Sam was made redundant and I was on a benefit at the time, stay-at-home mum styles, and that's when Sam moved in with me. And because you are incredibly moralistic, and that's beautiful, and that's wonderful, and Sam didn't want to be on a benefit, which meant that we were living off mine. I would have done it differently, Started, I think. Yeah, I, yeah I, we, I chewed through all the savings I had first because I felt like that's something I had to do. And I, I, yeah, yeah and that was really tough because we had nothing and that meant that there was nothing for emergencies or anything. So financially, the first few years of our relationship were really, really tough. Yeah. I know why this stuff doesn't make it into the movies. We want to escape, not be reminded of the real struggles that we're having in our relationships. But arguments and stress about money are super common. In fact, those kinds of disagreements are one of the strongest predictors of divorce. And on top of all of that stress, Sam and Andy were also dealing with some stuff around kids. Andy already had one kid from a previous relationship. She wanted more, and so soon they started trying for a baby, which took a year. That was hard. That was quite hard. But it did happen, which is awesome. But children bring with them their own sets of challenges. And for a couple of co-sleeping lesbians, some of those challenges can be especially tough. Because we were working really hard on trying to maintain a normal sex life. And I would read all these great articles about just taking the opportunity, doing it on the kitchen bench, wherever, it's just 10 <laughs> minutes. And I was like, it's 
not. It's not 10 minutes. <laughs> it's really not. I need a good, like, half an hour, maybe 40 minutes, you know, and preferably somewhere horizontal would be really nice. For us, personally, digital sex is the most common kind of sex. And what that can mean is that one person is receiving pleasure and the other person isn't. So you sort of take turns. And if it can take half an hour for one person... then you've got to have another half an hour for the other person. And in the early days, this is kind of amazing because it just kind of builds up and you sort of keep going, you keep taking turns and then you never sleep. We got no sleep. It was so bad. (laughs) I was so exhausted. Oh, the honeymoon period. We all love it and we all know it can't last, but we still mourn it and worry when it starts to go away. But for some lesbians, this concern about what's happening to their sex life can be compounded by a thing called lesbian bed death, or LBD. So LBD is a term that was dreamed up in the 80s after some research showed that about half of lesbians in relationships for two years or longer said they had sex once a month or less. But it's important to know the research was really problematic. For one, the word sex was never defined, so maybe what Andy and Sam called digital sex wouldn't have even been included. And other research hasn't backed up LBD either. Various studies have found that lesbian women report greater sexual satisfaction, have more enjoyable sex than straight women, have more orgasms, and that even when they do have less sex, it generally lasts longer, like Andy and Sam just described, and it feels better. But some lesbians think LBD is a thing. Sam does. It's happened to more than one of her relationships. Andy's read the research and is more sceptical. But either way, something like it has happened to them. I was just feeling really upset that I had no sex drive. Mm. I just couldn't work out where it had gone, why it had gone, Mm. what had changed. I think there were some body issues probably because Sam became a sports nut and you did. You seriously, like, you just flipped suddenly. So, like, when you're talking about relationships and, and jealousy and stuff, it's not just about someone going and have sex with someone. It's someone spending a lot of time outside the home and you're suddenly spending all this time away from me. Yeah. And you, you're so hot now. You got real fit. And Thanks. I have gone backwards, like, as I've aged and had children and stuff. But I feel like that made it really hard to be kind of vulnerable and have sex with you in a way that I was like, well, if she doesn't like her body, then how could she possibly like my body when my body is so much, not necessarily worse, but different. Yeah, and I did pick up on you sort of with that sort of stuff. And that was hard. And I, I tried to check myself a little bit on that. So has yeah. it been like a roller coaster? Uh-huh. Woohoo, oh, amazing yeah. sex. Oh, no sex, no yeah. sex. Oh, Basically. Amazing sex, amazing sex. Yeah, that's totally what it is. When you get into the no sex, it's really easy to just keep writing that up because you get into a rut. I think sex is quite important to us and it was tricky because it was such a cornerstone of our relationship to start with anyway so it was what you know that was why we were together and it was really hard to lose that wasn't it yeah regardless of the ups and downs sam and andy are determined to be in this thing together for the long haul they're married and they did that partly because they wanted to be committed before starting a family and partly because, and I suspect this is the case for so many of us, it's just what you do. I just mm. thought, well, we'll just, just get married and mm. have children. <laughs> that's that's what normal. you do. I think that's it's what you just do. expected. And it didn't yeah. change just because I was gay. I was like, well, I'll just find a lady to get married with and have children. <laughs> what I like about the wedding ceremony itself is that it's a way of saying to all your people, like your hapori, your village, your tribe, your family, your whānau, whoever is involved in your life. Hey, we're together forever, we're in this. So it had a more profound effect on me than yeah. I had expected. I didn't necessarily expect anything to be like different or you know, magic or whatever, but whenever our relationship's been on the rocks, part of my brain would be like, you can always leave, you can always step out, do you know what I mean? You know, like one of my thoughts might be, what would happen if you left and how would life look then and all that kind mm. of stuff. With the marriage and with the counselling and stuff, it was about saying, hey, I'm not one foot out the door. I am not going to even consider those thoughts of possibility. I'm going to be in this completely and utterly. I'm in this. Thank you, Sam and Andy. Sam and Andy there were talking about some of the challenges that they've encountered on the long monogamous road. I didn't mean to make that sound so dire. (laughs) 
Only technically, what they're doing should be described as serial monogamy. True monogamy is when an individual has only one partner in their whole lifetime. And a truly monogamous couple is pretty rare, but I've found one. Well, I'm 40 years old and I'm straight and I have only ever kissed one boy. We met when we were kids, um, have been together since I was 12. Yeah, married the love of my life. Let's set the scene. It's the summer of 1986-1987. We're not going to use names here, but she's eight years old and her, her brother and parents make up one of about ten families plus some other couples and singles in a tight-knit open brethren community into which she was born. And I remember the Sunday that this new family walked in. They had quite a lot of children and there were two boys wearing matching tracksuits. <laughs> and I he was one of them. them. Yep. Yep. I don't think you remember this, but I did ask her if she wanted to be my girlfriend when probably we were nine and ten. It was before you went overseas for a year. Yeah, that's right. And she was like, oh, yuck, you know, boys. Fair as, enough. As you do. But she went away and then she came back and it was actually a different person who came back because she had gone through puberty. <laughs> And, that's and had boobs. It. And had boobs. And that was sort of like a whole nother layer of, whoa. So when this couple first reached out to talk with me, a bunch of things jumped out from their message. Firstly, obviously, the age that they met. You don't hear of many relationships that start when a couple are 11 and 12 years old and last. And it's hard to imagine really what a relationship like that even looks like. Oh, we didn't talk to each other for the first year. <laughs> he literally got his sister to take me behind the church on a Sunday morning. And she was like, you know, he likes you and wants you to go out with him. And I was like, yes, because I'd started to develop a bit of a crush on him at that point. And then I think we were both so shy of each other because there was this changed status. We held hands after about a year. About a year. And I still remember the feeling of the tingling feeling up my spine. I was quite hopelessly romantic and like totally loved Anne of Green Gables and all of that sort of thing. And I was totally like, yeah, he's my Gilbert. Oh my gosh, it's too cute. I can't handle it. Okay, a year of not talking, then holding hands and the sparks and a kiss on the cheek. I imagine more sparks. They did, I have to say, actually split up for a bit when they were 16 and 17. It was his fault. But it didn't last. And they didn't see anyone else, so it doesn't count. Soon enough, they were back together. Fast forward a couple of years, and they're now engaged. Though their parents are making them wait a little longer to get married. And obviously, growing up in a conservative religious setting, it's considered really important that they get to their wedding night with their virginities still intact. Which actually wasn't very easy for them. I mean, we had incredibly strong sexual attraction to each other throughout our teenage years, um, we had to put boundaries on ourselves, like, you know, to sort of keep our hands off each other. It wasn't that the attraction wasn't there or that the hormones weren't there or, you know. Or that we didn't break the rules from time to time. You know? But not the big rule. But not the big not, rule. Not the big rule. Yeah. I suppose. So, yes, virginity. we were virgins on our wedding night. I mean, that was part of our motivation for getting married so young. <laughs> you know, because we genuinely felt like we didn't know if we could wait another year. When it came to your first time together did it stack up to everything that you'd been because I imagine there could be a lot of pressure oh, when totally. it's yeah. been building yeah, yeah, yeah. for that many years yes I and think no so. <laughs> oh, whoops <laughs> yes and no in the sense that we didn't expect it to be perfect we weren't expecting simultaneous orgasm I think you would have liked that yeah 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 it's, it's kind <laughs> it of like, was very idealistic um we yeah. had sex three times on our wedding night <laughs> yeah. okay you probably figured out by now the other reason I wanted to talk to this couple. A lot of the people I've talked with for Bang, who were brought up religious, carry a lot of shame about sex well into their adult lives. And it makes sense. When you're taught that sex and pleasure are bad, imagine how hard it must be to just flick a switch once you're married and fully embrace that part of yourself. But, and this might be surprising to you, despite enforcing some pretty rigid, I would say outdated, gender norms, the open brethren are in some ways pretty open when it comes to sex. You have to be married, obviously, but otherwise sex isn't a bad thing or something you only do if you want to make a baby. At least that's what these two were taught. Actually, we had really good premarital counselling from an older couple 
seriously really practical like yeah. you know you need lube and don't or what did they say don't go tenting don't go camping on your honeymoon go you know make sure you're somewhere yeah. warm and comfortable and private and have a hot bath but if you have a hot bath you'll dry out so use more lube you know it's all, like really, really practical, practical stuff practical stuff what would have been the reaction if you'd broken the rules or like was there a feeling of fear around that totally yes. um and I'd say a big part of the motivation for us still being virgins on our wedding night was a total fear of the shame that would would come if we weren't. So while it was upheld as a really positive and beautiful thing and really celebrated, you know, when you got there, mm. the converse of that is that there was a lot of guilt and shame mm. associated with the people who didn't, you know, yeah. last till the wedding that night. that included, or, you know, at church... People being named and shamed. Called out. So uh, you made, saw that. You yep, saw, yep, yeah. Yep. Made to apologise to the church, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. It was, it was an interesting thing, though. Whilst the environment that we were in was extremely patriarchal, I'd have to say that boys were as much slut-shamed as girls. Like there's a verse in the Bible where it says, you know, treat younger women as sisters in absolute yeah. purity. That would have been the key verse, really, for guys. The, the, the guys were to treat us as their young, as they would treat their younger sisters, to protect. And the boy that was involved would be equally as shamed as, or more shamed, actually probably more. It was almost like the girls were passive, a bit more passive in it. That. But I think that was also a manifestation of that sort of patriarchal kind of environment in a different way from... The boys are allowed to do anything and the girls aren't. Yeah. Mm. You know, but there was all this stuff about, you know, the girls, we were definitely taught about how to dress and like we had responsibility too, not to trip the boys up, you know, by <laughs> dressing immodestly. For us, I think there was just a certain level of stubbornness and pride because we were both kind of leaders as well, that we wouldn't want to be seen to be the ones that would fall. And that degree of stubbornness to to get it right, mm -hmm. probably carried us through. And then, you know, it's been really good for us, you know, that we've had this really exclusive, monogamous, fantastic sex life. Mm -hmm. But I totally acknowledge that there are lots and lots of people for whom that wasn't the case. People who grew up in similar circumstances to us, there's definitely a lot of hurt and a lot of damage that was done in that context as well. Like they said, their upbringing ended up giving this couple a lot. But they would eventually begin to feel themselves outgrowing it. You know, it was a very, very conservative environment in, in terms of gender roles. And so, you know, women had no leadership roles, weren't allowed to speak from the front. You know, like they had open times where people can share, but by people they mean men. <laughs> And I had a profession where I was taking more and more of a leadership role. Even behind the scenes at church. Totally involved behind the scenes. And I was, I suppose I was always someone that had a lot of vision and I had lots of ideas and started to really struggle with that not being valued. It, seemed, um, it seemed, started to seem like a very false kind of a distinction to make, to say you can do all this in your career, in your life, in your family, but when you the minute you church, walk into the church, you to you've got to be quiet and submissive. Yeah. And when do kids come along? Because you've got so two, two kids about now. About that time, yeah. Yeah, so we we started trying to have a family about 10 years into marriage. And I was pregnant on my 30th birthday and our 10th wedding anniversary. And, well, and that was actually a second pregnancy, so I'd had an earlier miscarriage prior to that. An ectopic, yeah. Yeah. And then we, so we had a stillbirth at 26 weeks, which was pretty out of the blue. After the stillbirth, actually, we had a really intensely intimate period, didn't we? Like, yeah. There was actually a really strong desire to, to connect. So we didn't have the baby, but we had each other. Yeah, yeah. So it was, I, I think we, came out of that period far, far stronger than we went into it. Far closer. Far closer. So at that point in time, I'd certainly been ready to leave the church and 
it wasn't that they handled it badly. Oh, not at all. Not at all. We had amazing support from people, but it was more like. At the point at which we left, we didn't know if we were going to be able to have children at all. And I was imagining a future of being a childless working woman in an environment where the greatest virtue for women is to be a mother at home. So by the time we had our first live baby, we were no longer part of that community. Fast forward a little bit and the couple now has a couple of kids. She's struggling with some health issues and naturally those things compounding means that their sex life starts to take a back seat. Well, he's still up for it. She's tired. There were times when you would just give me sex and I would appreciate it. There were times when I knew that she was doing it for me, not for her. I think probably one thing for us is that and actually part of the education that we got when we first started our sex lives was we'd always had this really strong value of mutual pleasure. You know, that, that sex was equal and should be mutually pleasurable and yeah. shouldn't be about one person, you know, being pleasured at the expense of the other, or, you know, it had to be, you know, all of that. And so I think when they sort of reached a point when I just didn't want it, you really struggled with that because there was that real sense of... Well, and, yeah, it's almost a sense of failure on my part that why... That yeah. I wasn't getting pleasure from it anymore. Yeah, um, it, wasn't, it wasn't necessarily a sense of I'm not good enough or anything like that. It was just like kind of a, a sadness that maybe this thing that was quite a big part of our relationship for much of it, that it was sort of taking a back seat. And how did you... Like, where are you at now in terms of this? And how? And if it's kind of better, I guess, how did you work to a point where it was? We actually went and saw a sex therapist for a time. Which I'd highly recommend. Yeah, yeah. But there was a big pressure dynamic, I think, that we identified and, and found ways to work through. The thing that the benefit of time gives you, when I say time, I mean years, is that you know that it's going to come back again. So it has never gone away and stayed away. We've arrived at now. And all of this history places this couple in a really interesting position when it comes to raising their own kids. I mean, I would love our kids to have what we've had, but I'm realistic as well in knowing that not everybody meets their soulmate when they're 12. Does it feel like there's these kind of twin threads in your mind where one of them is sex is precious and special and how amazing is it when you can be with someone for life who's the only person you've ever been with but then also like virginity is a construct it puts all this pressure on people it's so arbitrary like yes and I and my thoughts that, that I'm sort of coming to around this is that rather than thinking about this sort of state of being called virginity why not sort of turn around and talk about sex as being this positive, sacred, special thing? So that's a much more positive way of looking at, at it. Mm. I still think there's an element of keeping yourself for the right person. Then what happens if they bring home someone who didn't have that upbringing? Yeah, yeah. You know, because that can affect how you see them as having Absolutely. kind of let part of themselves go or yeah, not yeah, being totally. whole. Well, yeah... In a perfect world, I would want them to do that for themselves mm. Yeah. Mm. so that they have that to give to somebody. Mm. It doesn't mean they have to expect it from somebody else, but it's, it's actually a gift that you give to the person that you love and are committing yourself to. Because I've heard from so many people where um, religion was part of their lives and also some shame and taboo and those kinds of things, you know, the idea that we get is that religion and sexuality and sex positivity are incompatible. What would you say as a way of kind of wrapping up to, to that? My personal feeling is that our faith is actually integral to our sex positivity because of our belief in God and our relationship with him and our sense that he's made our bodies the way they are, he's made them good, then why not sex as part of that? I think as well though that and this is something that has changed over my life and certainly from our upbringing is um, having a, a much broader sense of God's love for all people as well and, and definitely we would have had very negative views of homosexuality for example when we were growing up and very you know very judgmental views and that certainly changed as well in, in that sense of 
feeling much more positive about the, the fact that God makes people different as well and you know loves everybody the same and you know and, and we're a lot more open now I think to viewing other sexualities as positive as well mm. um, not just our own Thank you so much you two for sharing with us So at this point we've heard two love stories both of which involve two people trying to make it through together in their own ways and in just those two stories we've heard about financial stress birth trauma, struggles to remain close after children, diverging interests, libido mismatch, sexless periods. I guess what I'm getting at here is that if long-term monogamous commitment is what you want for yourself, you can expect to face a lot of challenges. But luckily for us, there's some people with great advice about how to navigate those challenges, including psychologist and sex therapist Nick Bates. He's the father in our father-daughter sex advice duo, but he's here on his own today. Nick, we're in need of some help. How do we do this? Well, I think the first thing is if you can have a conversation, an ongoing conversation, that it's about I choose you, I choose to be with you, then you, you're, you're keeping the romance of monogamy alive. Mm. It's not, well, I'm trapped in this marriage and, you know, I've got no other choice. How romantic. You know, how romantic is that, you know? <laughs> so, I, you know, I do think the, the, the sort of freeing up of choice is, is a good thing because it's like, oh, no, no this is what I want to do. So, so that's where the intimacy part becomes really important because one of the best antidotes to boredom, especially sexual boredom, is the two people in the, in the monogamous relationship growing as people and therefore being open to new things and new understandings of themselves that translate into their sex life. This is actually something that our religious couple were really good with. They had very specific boundaries in place about not bringing other people into their relationship, including through pornography. That's just kind of a no-go for them. But they were really open to exploring together otherwise. I'm going to play you something quickly. You would probably go a lot further probably well, in exploring stuff but, than I would. But but I've sort of taken you with me as well. So it's like sex toys, for example. I would never have gone and bought you, them. You would never have even thought to have, really. Mm. And yet it's sort of that's something that's one part of our sex life. Yeah. Are you glad that that happened? <laughs> <laughs> Yes, <laughs> yes. There has definitely been a bringing. Like I've probably always been the more prudish element that then comes on and goes. Oh, yeah, that's actually quite nice. <laughs> okay, back to you, Nick. I mean, it's it's a weird orientation, and I accept that it, it won't necessarily sit well with everybody. But if you if you have this notion of actually I'm in this relationship to learn and grow. That's what I'm here for. And, you know, uh, having romance and great sex and, you know, companionship and all that is, is great. But actually my primary purpose is to learn and grow. And it's kind of like, well, am I learning and growing? So my view is that, is that we do this weird pair bonding thing. You which, see it as weird? Yeah, yeah, I do. <laughs> you don't yeah, think do. monogamy is natural to us as a species? I do not think that's natural to us as a species. So why would we choose to do it? You know, why do we do it? And I, I think what it does is if you, if you try and join your life with one other human being and kind of and put that boundary in place, you're then forced to mature because you're going to be confronted with all of your own limitations and failings. So I'm, you know, let's say I'm not very good at talking about my feelings and my partner is getting sick of not knowing what's going on with me until I erupt or do something indirect. That's going to blow the relationship up. She's put up with it for 20 years, but she doesn't want to put up with it anymore. I've got to either grow or I'm going to lose this thing that I've invested in. And so it's an engine for growth. Often we enter into these relationships blindly. I, I would have to um, modify that and say we okay. always, always, not often, always. <laughs> okay. always. We, we, we fall in love with an illusion. So at that beginning phase where you are thinking, you know, maybe this is a relationship that I want to stick with, or mm -hmm. are there any kind of common red flags? I think the initial, you know, flurry of limerence and the, that sort of you know, bonding phase kind of has to run its course. When that wears off, and, and, and I'm talking about living together here, you know, once the, the initial honeymoon period of living together is over, then having a look at, well, how do we deal with difference? When we have differences, how do we each respond? And if your partner is hostile, blaming, judgmental, critical, persistently avoidant, um, that's a red flag. And if you are, that's a red flag. Mm. So I think one thing that we can probably all admit is that where there is monogamy, a lot of the time there's infidelity. And 
in a lot of cultures, infidelity means the breakdown of the relationship entirely. You know, once cheating happens, it's over. What do you think about that? I mean, there are some people who are lying and deceiving and cheating the whole way through the relationship. You know, they're what we call players. And, I mean, if you discover your partner's one of those, kick him or her to touch because they're, they're, they've never been honest with you. They've never been really open or intimate with you. They don't really want what you want. But, you know, if you've got a partner you've been with for, you know, I don't know, for a couple of decades and you haven't been talking about things and you haven't been sorting out and you kind of know that, you know, that actually there's been increasing emotional distance and stress and pressure and da-da-da, and then they end up having an affair with somebody at work, which is, you know, typically what happens. Maybe they end it and they, they tell you about it, you know. It's like, well, no, don't kick them to touch. Find out what the hell is going on and see what you need to change, you know, both of you. I'm not saying that's an okay thing for somebody to do. It's, a, you know, it's breaking a contract. It's breaking a, a promise and agreement. But I'm saying you can work with that in many cases. When people come to me, you know, post an infidelity, one of the things I say to them is, look, this might be a deal breaker, but it might be the beginning of you guys being, you know, once you've worked your way through this, and that will be a difficult and painful and maybe lengthy process, but actually operating your relationship at a much deeper level of intimacy and connection. Mm, I've talked to couples who say that infidelity is the best thing that happened to them, which yeah. is a very, that's strange for us yeah. to get our it's, heads around. Yeah, I mean, it's not that it's a recommended way to increase in, intimacy. No, of but course. But it's like, I mean, we're back to that whole thing of, you know, actually your relationship is about learning and growth. And sometimes it takes a major crisis before that happens. Thank you so much, Nick. We're going to have Nick back in future episodes. He is well locked in as our regular bang expert. We're going to go back to Christopher Ryan for a second. That's the co-author of Sex at Dawn, who had this kind of thing to say about monogamy. If it came naturally to our species, it would be easy to us. Now, I might have given you the idea that because Chris thinks we need to address the idea that monogamy is natural to us, he is therefore anti-monogamy, but that's not the case. The way I look at it is monogamy is like vegetarianism. Clearly, it's not the natural behavior of our species. Our species is omnivorous. The evidence for that is overwhelming. That doesn't mean that vegetarianism may not be a very appropriate response to the contemporary situation. We don't at any point argue that monogamy is a mistake or that people who are in monogamous relationships are kidding themselves. All we're saying is approach this from a position where you understand what the challenges are going to be because of the trajectory of your species and the history of your species. You are going to feel attracted to other people. I don't care how much you love your husband. I don't care how much you love your wife, your partner. You are going to be attracted to other people. If you interpret that as you've been told to, that you're a bad person, or that it's an indication that your relationship is insufficient, then you're going to have a really hard time in life. But if you interpret your appetite for variety as a totally natural human thing, because that's the way our species evolved, then it's easier to handle. Now, maybe you handle that by simply saying, oh, let's watch porn together and talk about what turns you on and turns me on and not get threatened by that. Or maybe you have an open relationship. If there's more tolerance, more understanding, more authenticity, things can only be better. Thank you so much, Chris Ryan. And there was a lot of great stuff in that interview that I couldn't squeeze into this episode. So I'm going to release the interview as it stands as a bonus episode this week. Keep an ear out for that. But we have one more story to share today before we wrap up. And it's not the love story that we're used to hearing, but it does contain a lot of what Chris just talked about, tolerance, understanding and authenticity. It starts in Dunedin with Andrew. I was struck by her immediately. So I decided to um, ask her over and cook her a meal and just and not drink at all and just explain to her how I was feeling about her. So I did that in a very, probably very fumbly way towards the end of the night. And as I recall, she looked kind of shocked. And I said, look, it's fine. Just go off and think about it. Don't need to tell me now. On the receiving end of that news was Anna. This is her version of events. My most vivid memory. Oh, I know what you were going to say. Is <laughs> Andrew had this very much loved cat called Jasper, who eventually lived with us both as a couple for many years. And Jasper jumped up on the formica table where Andrew had served his meal and started eating off Andrew's plate. And Andrew was just completely casual 
about this. I have no memory of it whatsoever. But That's because you were used to the cat eating yeah, off your plate. I really <laughs> would have thought I would have tried harder. <laughs> so like Sam and Andy, the lesbian couple that we heard from before, the first few years were tough for Anna and Andrew. Part of that was for similar reasons too. Money was tight, especially when their first and then their second kid came along. And by the time the youngest was two, Anna was feeling a bit stuck. Like if she didn't make a move in her career soon, she was going to miss the boat. So she applied for a policy job in Wellington and got it. And they packed up and moved north. We are quite different people in some ways. And I think the move and the career change exacerbated that a little bit. Mm. I'm full on to the point of being annoying. I want to try new things, do everything. Andrew, I think, is a bit more of a settled in life person. And so I would say we started to diverge at that point. And I, at the time, didn't realise what was happening. So I was a stay-at-home dad for the first two years. The kids were six and two. My memory generally at that time is was a, of it being pretty pretty good. But later on I began to realise actually clearly things weren't as good during that period as I thought. And with hindsight I should have worked much earlier than I did as well. I remember that as a really challenging time and a certain feeling of being trapped because I always had to just get up and be the breadwinner, which is in no way a criticism of Andrew. That was, you know, how we chose to arrange our family life. So I kind of feel like I had to make a bit of a trade-off between being the mum I would have liked to have been and building a career, and I'm not sure I got that trade-off right. Mm, that's hard. Mm, that's right. Yeah, it took me a long time to realise that was how Anna was feeling about it. And also from the other side, I, I found it hard to realise I had, I had no money. If for some reason I had wanted to leave, I didn't know what, how I would go about that. Mm. And it's saying to me once, many years ago, we've got to spend more time together, otherwise we'll drift apart. And I just remember thinking, well, kids are small, that's just the way it goes. If I just hang in there, it'll probably come right. Eventually I realised it wasn't going to, and, and I learnt, I learnt to live with that. Towards the end of last year, Anna and Andrew officially separated, after nearly 22 years together. Mm. But informally, we had some... <laughs> Some years where I would have thought, in effect, we weren't we weren't really a couple. We probably weren't a couple in the way most people would understand that, but th- there was no lack of respect or of caring for one another or of wanting to parent together. But that relationship didn't have a name, and having named it, I certainly feel a lot better about having an atypical relationship. So, what's the name? I'm going with post relationship relationship. <laughs> I don't want to introduce you to this couple and then break your hearts, but I wanted to talk with Anna and Andrew because we can't really talk about this weird peer bonding thing, as Nick put it, without recognising the fact that a lot of the time it doesn't work out how we hoped it would. But I also really like how Anna and Andrew are looking at their separation. Basically, their relationship isn't over. It's just different. Because we are open about it... Mm. It means we can kind of negotiate our own way of doing it. We can tell our friends what to expect. We've told our friends, for example, you can invite us out together, you can invite us out singly. Being able to clarify your relationship to other people is really empowering for me and makes me feel a lot better. Yeah, because I guess the old ways would have just been to struggle on in secrecy and not let anyone show that actually the relationship had changed, which I imagine would be really lonely. Exactly. I mean, I think there's a lot of pressure to put on a brave face and internalise what feels like the failure of your relationship and be very lonely, and we aren't in that space. And I feel good about that. Mm. I agree. So I guess the other question, and this is probably something that is occurring to listeners at this point, is this all sounds so rosy until you imagine other people coming into the equation. Yeah, you know Mm. where each other stand, but what happens in terms of future relationships? Yeah, it's a really, really good question and one that I get thrown a lot of the time by people when they hear how we're living. And all I can say honestly is I don't know. I know if Anna meets someone else, I'll be delighted because I know it'll be the right person. Um, I won't be upset from a personal viewpoint, but just making, just, just working out how the dynamics would be. That's sort of a bridge yet to cross, I suppose. 
Me, I've got no absolutely no desire to meet anyone whatsoever. <laughs> I've got my kids and my cat. So. <laughs> For me, part of the post-relationship relationship thing is parting in a way that doesn't trash the other person emotionally or financially or as a parent. So if I were to meet someone else that someone else would have to be someone who appreciated that Andrew and the kids, and the cats, are my central relationships in my life, and that will always be. It might not be the love story that we grew up with, but it's a beautiful one. A couple whose romantic relationship didn't work out, but who nonetheless decided to be there for each other, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, and maybe, if they're lucky, till death do they part. Just before Christmas, we lost our much-loved brother-in-law on Andrew's side of the family. And that caused the extended family to come together um, in a lot of grief, obviously. But it also reaffirmed to me that we are family through thick and thin those relationships will be there for the rest of our lives and that's what I want my children to see and what I want them to have what do you think? Yeah she's the closest friend I've ever had we're trying to make the best of it now Mm. so that our lives still go on together happily in the meantime at least and yeah Mm. And we'll just make it work, hey? People are getting more and more open to different forms of relationship. Mm, Thank you so much, Anna and Andrew. And that story actually leads really well into next week's episode of Bang, where we're going to be exploring some of the different forms of relationship that fall under the umbrella of ethical non-monogamy or consensual non-monogamy, things like polyamory and open relationships and the different ways that people are navigating that. If you have any questions or feedback, do email me. I love getting those emails. My email address is bang at rnz.co.nz. And thank you so much for listening. You can subscribe. You know where to subscribe. You're already subscribed. But if you haven't already reviewed us, go and do it. Review us, rate us. We really appreciate that. Bang was produced by me, Melody Thomas, and engineered by William Saunders. Mark Chesterman also helped with this episode, and Adam McCauley has provided valuable coaching in the studio. The executive producer is Tim Watkins.